0: charting a course for sustainable space this is space to grow an AstroScale and market scale podcast with your hosts chris blackerby and charity whedon hey there everybody this is chris blackerby astro coo and welcome back to space to grow as those of you who are becoming our loyal listeners know we are a podcast focused on all the factors that make the space economy grow the technology the society finance policy government commercial interaction it's uh it's a busy exciting time and is continuing to take all those steps toward creating long-term sustainability in orbit uh, and we're doing that through a variety of servicing areas uh active debris removal and end of life services and life extension so it's a it's a fun time for us in astroscale and a fun time for the entire space community um as always i am here with my co-host and vice president of global space policy of astroscale charity Weeden. hello hey charity so uh we're so excited to bring you an interview with our next guest
1: uh chris
0: yes
1: sorry 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 to interrupt but may i introduce our guest today it would be such an honor as i hold him in the highest esteem
0: sure thing go for it
1: okay thank you um well you know how there are people you meet that are of a default no stance like their motto is why should we do this well our guest is the opposite he is more why shouldn't we do this when i met him 14 years ago I found this perspective refreshing, and I've carried this lesson with me ever since, especially when it comes to developing policy and forming alliances and partnerships. He is, in fact, a very effective diplomat, although I expect he will say he is simply a humble scientist.
0: Yeah, it was such a great conversation, great guy, and and forming alliances and partnerships, it's such an essential element of space sustainability.
1: It sure is, yes, and the reason why we need his advice here today. So I'm proud to announce we have as guest Dr. David Kendall, former United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space Chair, and Canadian, got to put that in, during a pivotal time in the development of the 21 long-term sustainability guidelines to help guide us through the diplomatic side of space sustainability. Dr. Kendall is by education a physicist and former director general of space science and technology at the Canadian Space Agency. He is also adjunct faculty member of the International Space University and has participated in a number of other international bodies, such as the Interagency Space Debris Coordination Committee and the Group on Earth Observations. He is a recipient of the C.D. Howe Award. It's a prestigious Canadian space honor and was awarded the Queen Elizabeth II Golden Jubilee Medal. Dare I say, and I'm putting up the vibes there now, that he should be a recipient of the Order of Canada. Uh, should be. <laughs> yeah, sure.
0: Well, you're a Canadian. You can you can say that kind of stuff and it gets out there. I think that carries some weight. It should at least. Yeah, I yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, this is a uh, not only an accomplished scientist, but a decorated space diplomat. Uh, you know, I like the company we keep, Charity.
1: Exactly. So, Dr. Kendall, welcome to Space to Grow, and we're honored to have you here to discuss the diplomatic side of space sustainability.
0: Enjoy this great conversation, everyone. David, welcome to Space to Grow. Uh, thank you. It's fantastic to have you here. Um, You have such a unique background, David, and You know, you went from being this uh, scientist to a diplomat, a space diplomat. And uh, when I was at NASA headquarters, I used to have a uh, debate with some of my scientist friends there. And the scientists would tell me that it's much easier to shift from being a scientist to a diplomat than from a diplomat to a scientist. Uh, Now, I understand scientists need all that, you know, PhD stuff and all of that other hard work that you need to do. But can you settle the debate right here? which is more difficult science or diplomacy and remember you're talking with two career space diplomats so that's a tough uh, one remember that
2: um (laughs) i'm going to hedge my bets and saying they're both extremely challenging um but in completely different ways and your colleagues were quite right It, it is um i think almost impossible to shift from diplomacy to science because with science, you have to be immersed in it 24 uh, 7. You have to be up to the latest, up, up with the latest research. You have to, um, you just have to be working in the lab and working in, at your particular scientific uh, discipline. Uh, and there's so much, so much information out there that you, 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 and you just can't miss too much. With diplomacy, you have a little bit more leeway. You, you don't, you don't, you have to be, of course, on top of the issues. But you do have a little bit of time to think um, and to, let's say, uh, converse, and, and 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 science is often a very much a, a singular activity, um, where you're really looking at a small problem um, uh, very intently. Uh, and doing it often by yourself, um, acad- academics, is, you know, <laughs> traditionally extremely, uh, <laughs> insular people, in my opinion. Um, uh, but they have to be in order to be successful. Whereas diplomacy is much more being out there, talking to people, sort of scrub, thinking about ideas, which you have to do, of course, in science as well. But in diplomacy, you have that opportunity to um, to scratch more than you can in science, where you're always looking, um, you know, always looking at the, uh, the, de- the, the the minutia, one might say, whereas. Um, for diplomacy, and now I'm not talking about lawyers which who, who also look at minutiae. <laughs> so I'm looking much more at the, the whole diplomacy issue where you're looking at a more broader palette, I would say. And uh, so the skill set is, is somewhat different. Um, and the transition from one to the other. Uh, it taught me uh, a tremendous amount, and uh, and that's uh, one of the reasons, one of the reasons why I feel that, that I have had a tremendous amount of luck and fortune in my in my career, is to be able to um, move, not seamlessly I would say, but uh, to, at some at some level
0: between uh, those two um, uh, those two areas. Yeah. So what, what actually that, that leads to this question of what, what led you to cross disciplines? Why, why did you make that move from uh, you had a distinguished career as a scientist? Why did you move over?
2: And that's an interesting question, and, and I, I'll I'll bring my wife into it, actually. <laughs> right. and, uh, in, the late, uh, in the late 1990s, I, I was a, a career scientist uh, at the Canadian Space Agency. I had done a few experiments and was continuing to work with a lot of uh, scientific groups in uh, my field at that time, which was uh, upper, upper atmospheric uh, physics and chemistry. And um, uh, the position of the... Um, director general um I was the director uh, and running running science programs and uh, but uh, the director position the director general came uh, around uh, the person be- who was that in that position had uh, re- retired and so um I just mentioned it over dinner to my wife and I said to her look it's interesting you know X is, uh, is now um, going to be retiring in a few months um, and she said so you should are you going to apply and i said no no i don't want to get involved in that that's sort of all meetings and just uh, you know it'll take me away from my really real interest and i won't be able to uh really uh, work on, on the problems that i'm i'm interested in and she said well okay yeah okay that's fine but let me just give you my my two cents worth and that was that who, you've been very lucky in your career to have a, a boss bosses who have supported you um and allowed you to do the things you want want to do um and you've been and that's little little rare um from you know she also had had several careers in senior positions and uh it's it's a little rare and what uh what happens if the person that gets that job really doesn't support what you want to do what are you going to do so so it sort of set me back and said my goodness, what, what would I do? Uh, so uh, long, long story short, I applied, I became the director General and then I started to see sort of the other side of the coin, uh, how decisions are made um, and f- first of all of course within within the Canadian Space Agency and within the Canadian system. And then I started to realize that, that what we're doing in the space business is of course is, has, is, a, is really a, a team effort, a globally a team effort. And um, I started to get much more interested in what was happening, first of all, in the more so space sciencey uh, global things. So I, I became a um, bureau member of COSPAR. Um, I was involved quite uh, as chairman and as a member of the Interagency Space to coordination Committee. I was uh, a vice president of the International Astronautical Federation, um, et cetera. I mean, a number of these international bodies, and I started to see how things were being put together uh, from a top-down process and how it affected. What um, programs in various countries uh, were were working on and, and and how those collaborations were being developed. And this really intrigued me because I thought I could make a bit of a difference here. Um, uh, and so that's why I became so international. And again, I, I was very lucky, very fortunate. My my bosses, the president of the space agency, et cetera, were supporting me at that time. And then i got involved um, with uh, copious the committee on the peaceful uses of outer space Um, i think i first went to copious in about 2008 um, and just gave some presentations and then again just got really sucked into this uh this how this body could be was effective i i think it is effective was effective then i think it still is very effective um and may how could i uh, help uh, my community, the community that I served as a, as a public servant. How could I help that community do better through collaborations, through developing uh, understanding of some of the big, broad brush issues that uh, that copious deals with? Um, and I really became intrigued by that, and. Uh, and that's really how I got into sort of, as you say, diplomacy. Although I'm not a diplomat, um, but I'm I'm really interested in how policy is um, functions um, because it's not a clean. Nothing's clean, and po- different diplomacy and policy certainly isn't clean. I was also influenced, curiously enough, by a, um, a very uh, well-known uh, gentleman, John Logston. Um, John was, uh, and I go back now to this, these stories about the International Space University. I first went to the International Space University in in, in 1990 and have been a faculty member ever since. Um, and John used to go, and I used to be uh, chairman of the Space Physical Science Department for ISU. And John, of course, was the uh, preeminent um, space policy person. And he used to come every year um, and give a series of I think, brilliant lectures on why space policy is important. And first of all, I sort of, I had long, not long debates, but I had sort of debates with John about you know well sure it's not really that important John you know science is much more important <laughs> you, you can <laughs> and John very you know <laughs> very politely uh, told me how what how stupid I was um and um and frankly he was right uh, it took me what 1990 that's 30 years to uh, <laughs> a little bit less than that it took me quite a long time to realize it but uh, yes, policy in the end controls what you can and cannot do. And unless you get a grasp of policy, and and uh, and and can be part of the policy discussions, uh, you will not be able to succeed in, in whatever you want to do because they, that is going to control um, the program which you are uh, are going to uh, are trying to manage. Boy, that's so key.
1: I, I think what you said was kind of a turning point for me at isu david and that is policy helps make those large decisions that flow into all the programs and what we do and why we do it and it usually plays second fiddle until someone wants a budget for something (laughs) (laughs) right Right? um and 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 then it becomes very very important um but kind of back to the time when you were chair of Copius, um, I think such a seminal moment was the 21 long-term sustainability guidelines yes, that was. were created. It was so important to create those to ensure space sustainability. I'd love to hear your insights into, was that difficult getting getting there? I know you were there for two out of the 10 or so years that they were debated, but give us some a little insight as the chair Copius, what was what were the challenges and what were the, the great outcomes of your time there?
2: Yeah, thank you, Charity. Um, I, I was actually there from the beginning of the uh, working group, uh, creation of the working group. Uh, I think I was, um, I, actually I was a th- in, back in 2010, uh, I was head of the Canadian delegation for the scientific and technical subcommittee and of course the, the uh, s- space sustainability working group um was uh, created in 2010. So um and I I knew Peter Martinez again from <laughs> wherever or, you know from the International Space University and so um so I had was there's a delighted. theme here I think <laughs> yeah <laughs> I was delighted that Peter you know was nominated and took on the responsibility um of that uh of, of leading that working group um and uh it was it was a uh, being involved right right from the beginning um first of all as a Canadian delegate delegate uh, to the uh to the team um and to the working group and then um later on of course from 2016 to 2018 I was the chair of the committee um so we had to uh, in that point in time, my job was to try and get it through the committee um, so I, we could take it through to the um, uh, General Assembly as part of the final report, which we, as uh, as you probably know, as you probably remember, failed to do in 2018 because there was one state that decided, one out of 90 states of, uh, that decided that it, they didn't want to do that at that time, uh, big pout, and so they, um, they blocked it, and since copious books by Total um, um, has to. Everybody has to agree. Uh, consensus, full of consensus, has to be approved. Has to be achieved. Um, that one vote um, effectively blocked us going forward in 2018. Fortunately, um, through lots of arm twisting and d- discussions, it went through in 2019 to the General Assembly. Uh, we finished the job in 2018. Um, but the, I, th- I think the importance of this. Uh, effort grew on me throughout those eight years from 2010 to 2018. Um, and is even grown stronger uh, on me since we've completed it. And now two years later or three years later, um, I look back and 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 believe that this was a seminal moment with within in the committee. Uh, why do I say that? Uh, because after all, these are non-binding guidelines. Anybody could ignore them, etc. This is the, the, the hit one always gets. Uh, but remember that when uh, a state uh, agrees to a guideline such as this, there is really a uh, there. There is weight behind that. Um, a state can't. It can, of course, ignore them to some extent, since they're non-binding but once they've signed on there's a sort of moral obligation that they they continue to support these and and try and do what they can and i believe that most states um in fact i don't think there's any state that has come out and said well that was just a, a nice exercise i think all states now agree that this was a an important um breakthrough uh because as again we know It is very tricky, or I would say pretty well impossible, given the geopolitics of the world today uh, to have any binding uh, resolution here, uh, any treaty. Um, And so getting 21 uh, sustainability guidelines uh, through uh, on consensus of 90 states um, in uh, some uh, what have we got now? 42 years after the last treaty, the Moon Treaty was signed in 1979. Um, uh, so, so about 40 years after that treaty was signed, I think is a is a, a major accomplishment because in between the um, Moon Agreement, the last of the treaties, and uh, and today, we really have had we've had a few principles: nuclear power sources in 1992, remote sensing in 1986. Um, we've had other single guidelines, such as the space debris mitigation uh, guidelines of the of copious in 2007, but we but suddenly to to have agreed on 21 new ways of working together in space and under best practices. I think was a a, a remarkable uh, achievement. And now what we have to do is we have to build on this. We have to now move forward. Um, and start moving into those areas that were, because there were seven or eight other guidelines that we didn't conclude, Um, interestingly enough, and given Astroscale's scale's interest, of course, uh, several of those dealt with um, um, ADR, um, active debris debris removal, which were put forward at that time and, and added to the list. Um, mainly by the, the Russian Federation. Um, at that time, I would say the American delegation and other like-minded countries did not want really to engage in those discussions. Um, I think the, uh, the, the the time is now much more ripe for that, and we can certainly discuss that um, uh, for the future. Um, but also to use that template to start to look at other issues that we know need to be resolved uh, such as uh, space mining, um, the whole space exploration issues, the um, the principles that uh, have been put forward by the, Artem- by the Artemis uh, Accord, um, uh, and other um, uh, issues that deal uh, with uh, space traffic management, etc. Um, so, I now the last year because of the pandemic, we were able to meet and um, which was really unfortunate because I think that the, we've lost a bit of momentum. And the question this year in Copius uh, that I will be looking at most most keenly is, how, can we rebuild that momentum uh, as to move forward into some new uh, collaborative working arrangements for best practices on the on the hard issues that are still out there?
1: So technology is moving so fast and there's not another 10 years to come up with, right? Like another additional 20 set of guidelines. How can states implement quickly and effectively? And what is the role of this, uh, like merging and middle space powers here? It's not just all about the large space powers, is it?
2: It is not, no. In fact, some of the strongest voices at the committee are the blocks of, um, I say, middle powers or developing powers. Um, I would specifically name the group of 77 plus China. I, the African bloc is becoming very, uh, very interesting in its uh, uh, cohesion. Um, GruLAC, the group of Latin American and Caribbean states, uh, have always been um, very thoughtful about what, uh, how they want to move forward. Um, and they're becoming, I think, strong voices. Uh, they have become strong voices. And, uh, and I, I hope they become even stronger voices because as you quite rightly point out, this is not just about the big boys. This has to include, um, and, we, and we have to ensure that there's some equitability, um, some, some benefits uh, that uh, can be shown uh, and demonstrated uh, real benefits to the uh, to the developing uh, countries which make up of course the largest block in the uh, in, in copious going back to your question or your comment about no we can't wait 10 years absolutely we cannot wait 10 years so that goes back to to my my point is have we have we lost momentum um that we built through the sustainability guidelines can we get that back uh is there a willingness to start to open those negotiations on a on a fast track. When I left, uh, that my my closing remarks um, to the committee when I stepped down as chair after my two-year term was that. Copious, in my opinion, has three major challenges. Um, one is that there are two uh, subcommittees: the legal subcommittee and the scientific and technical subcommittee. And right now, they really don't talk to each other in any serious way. And that, is, and since all the problems that we're dealing with have legal, policy, scientific, and technical issues to to, to, uh, to deal with, we must find a way uh, to make sure that those 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 Communities talk to each other and and come up with um, solutions and ideas and recommendations uh, that uh, incorporate all of those aspects of of the business. My second point was that we. Um, uh we have to find a way in copious of bringing in the voices of the commercial sector commercial sector is now as we know over 70% of the business um okay. and we have to we have to find a way and, and uh, just for those listeners that uh, don't know um the commercial sector cannot be represented in at the at the committee um, it is only nation states uh, that uh, that are members of the committee. There are, can be observers, which can be non-governmental, uh, international gov- non-governmental observers, but not uh, uh, but not companies. Um, so, how do we find that voice? How, not find that voice? How do we listen to that voice? How do we work with those voices in order to uh, to develop the best practices in the future? Because these are the people, uh, these are the um, organisations which are making the running here. And my third point, which speaks to what you just said, Charity, is that copious has to find a way of moving a lot faster than it has has done. And you quite rightly point out, we cannot wait eight years and go through that process we did with the long-term sustainability guidelines uh, in the future because because the technology is moving so quickly. We need, we have three four perhaps five years to start to work on um, a, a, a guidelines d- dealing with space exploration we're behind we're behind on the guidelines dealing with active debris removal we're behind on space traffic management guidelines um, serious guidelines that can be um, best practices that can be agreed upon by all countries how do we how do we move this forward much more rapidly. and I don't have a solution, um, but but it is a, a, a tremendous challenge,
0: I think that that was my that was my question off of this because um, that is that is the key the key thing. And, and as you're talking about this introduction of so many other players into the conversation in a positive way. Uh, you know in the past it was always just the big space players and maybe lobbyists and big aerospace corporations behind them. now you have, all of these other uh, growing, uh, you know, middle space powers, growing uh, um, country, countries that have a growing space capability. You have all of this uh, uh, space uh, e- economy, all these startups out there. How do we incorporate all these voices and at the same time make things go faster? Obviously, when we add more people into the mix, it's gonna it generally slows things down.
2: Yeah, there there are. There is a model um, that we could perhaps look at, uh, and that is the model of the ITU, International Telecommunications Union, which does incorporate and does allow the commercial sector to be part of the discussion. It can't make decisions, obviously. Um, ITU is again uh, run by the states um, of uh, of the world, the 193 states of the of the uh, of member states of the United Nations. But um, uh, they do they do they do, they have found a way to have the 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 commercial sector present to listen in um, to be able to provide input into the decisions that need to be made and so there are models here which we can think of um and we really do have to work hard uh, to make that happen but what i don't see unfortunately right now is that there's any leadership within the within copious within the, the 95 Currently, the ninety-five member states of Copius to incorporate this radical change. Um, so we need <laughs> we need a shakeup there somehow, and I am uh, not uh, I'm not confident that we're going to see it in the ne- in the in the near future. But uh, hopefully, hopefully. Um, hopefully some leadership will 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 emerge some of the major powers uh, at the highest level and and uh, we're talking about presidents here and uh, uh, and prime ministers and, uh, and 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 whoever uh will you know through through a G20 process or a, through a G8 process or whatever the process is um decide that this needs now a level of of leadership that's that's higher than, than we're getting right now within the, uh, within the committee.
1: We, at Astroscale, we talk about space sustainability quite a bit. We, we mm. ta- talk ad nauseum about <laughs> it, to be honest, in the mm. public, with other industry, with governments. Uh, I would love to get some secret sauce um, information from you of how do you bring along partnerships and get folks to agree on a, large-scale efforts such as, let's change the way we operate and behave in orbit?
2: I think, that again, I, I, I just have to go back to leadership. I, I think that space space powers, the major space powers that, that still control a lot of the dialogue and a lot of the conversation um, uh, about the future, um, need to just be there to start to say okay um, uh, on a bilateral basis uh, on a uh, you know a U.S. Russian Russian Chinese. Um, I note that there was uh, a space. Um, uh, how would you call it? A forum, one might say, being uh, has been arranged or had been arranged at the last. Suppose the G eight uh, or G. I can't remember what the G number was now. Um, I think it was in uh, uh, the at one of the Arab states was uh, just recently had a, had a uh, was a leadership uh, had a leadership um, role in in one of these forums and space um, and space security and space sustainability. Was raised at some level. I don't think it made the final communiqué, but at least it started to. And this has this has happened in the past. I I believe that uh, Madam Clinton, uh, when she was um, um, the uh, head of the State Department in the U.S., raised this at one of the previous um, G G meetings uh, a few years ago. It hasn't so hasn't had any traction yet. Um, and the question is, when will it? what will need it need what will need to happen to have it have it have some traction um and I hope it's not a major disaster in space and and I Mm, I say that um rather rather um bluntly um but we're getting to the point where the statistics are showing that there's going to be some some nasty uh events going on uh in, in up up there if we if we don't uh, take this seriously you know i was just reading a euroconsult report which just came out a day or so ago that um there are currently 4100 4, active satellites in orbit and by 2030 they expect there to be an extra 14000 small satellites added I, the numbers are just staggering, and we cannot just continue to go on and think, "Okay, these people, um, uh, the SpaceX's of the world, uh, the um, uh, and the others that are putting up the OneWebs, um, fine folks." Don't don't get me wrong here. Uh, but in the end we're going to find they're going to be stray satellites, they're going to be uh, satellites which they lose control of. Uh, this is inevitable. this is what happens uh, in that in this type of environment. Um, and so um, you know uh, even with SpaceX, uh, <laughs> interesting statistic, there are currently 1445. Uh, satellites have been launched by SpaceX uh, in uh, Starlink um, of which 1,319 are still active or in uh, so uh, and my rough calculation, that's 100 and mm, something like 126 uh, are unaccounted for Um, (laughs) an interesting number. This is on their website. So, um, uh, so we're going to have uh, interesting events happening because they're not not they will not be able to control uh the full mega constellations they've been put up and and what what do we do about it what what is the what is the fallback position uh, these satellites are in at 550 kilometers above the earth that's a massive Swarm of uh, objects in a very critical part of the uh, of the orbits uh, of our orbits uh, uh, availability.
0: So anyway,
1: well, I'll I'll just say that the first thing that people can do is follow the 21 LTS guidelines. Yes, and then yes. there's other things. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes. Definitely.
2: Yeah. And and if if we do, if we can, and quite right, Charity, if we can uh, get people to follow those guidelines and to, for example, promote the collection, sharing, and dissemination of space debris monitoring information, improve the accuracy of orbit, orbital data on space objects, and enhance the practice and utility of sharing orbital information on space objects. Those mm. those which are part of the guidelines um, would, would be tremendously helpful. But in the end, one of the things, okay, let me, let me just, Go off on maybe slightly a bit of a tangent, maybe not. Um, one of the things that worries me is that much of this uh, space traffic management and orbital uh, information uh, is now being fed out to the private sector. And the private sector is doing a good job. They're putting up new uh, instruments, uh, they're developing new techniques, um, uh, and they're going to do it, uh, I think, a lot more effectively and efficiently than than, than governments can do it. But in the end, uh, are we going to have to pay for all of the uh information that we get on what's going on up there uh how we how are we going to state this is not just just we i mean the collective we the, the global we if uh, somebody in uh uh, in an African state, who's uh, just got a satellite up there wants to know what's going on around it? Are they going to have to go to a, a private uh, organisation and say, "Could you tell me how much, uh, how, you know, how how dangerous is it up there, and, and am I likely to bump into something in the night?" I, I this is this is not the answer. Um, Uh, The policy has to be that there has to be a process whereby governments take control of the information, um, share it, disseminate it, store it, um, analyze it. Yes, using the um, facilities of of the private sector, but in the end, this is a state. Uh, and this is a global issue that uh, companies uh, who are in the business of making profit are not are, should not be um,
0: <laughs> given the uh, responsibility for. Yeah, there there has to be there has to be a government input into this kind of orbital environment, uh, and and with this dynamic world that we're moving into, and you've seen it shift, you've seen it over your career uh, shift from. The more you know, let's say, traditional um, space uh, space uh, interaction and uh, and and activity to one that we're talking about now that has so many players and so many different ideas and, and concepts that are coming up. Uh, what kind of advice would you give to uh, young space professionals, whether they're interested in the diplomacy side, whether they're interested in the startup space side, uh, joining a traditional uh, aerospace company or um or space agency? generally who is interested in, in coming into the, um, the profession that we all love on, uh, of, of the space community. What are some practical lessons that you'd like to, to give to that next generation?
2: Well, I, I've always been thought myself extremely fortunate in that uh, I have had spent time um, in what I call the three solitudes of space activities. I spent quite a bit of time at university um, as an academic, as a researcher, um, and uh, found that fascinating. I then, at some point in my career, uh, joined a space company and had the uh, shock of my life at finding out uh, you know <laughs> uh, that I, I I couldn't just sit there and think uh, about uh, about some uh, <laughs> how many angels on the head of a pin all my all my my life I had to actually produce something and and there was a bottom line here um and that was uh, that was wonderful frankly uh, wonderful experience for me and then after that I joined the government and I uh, work I learned how learned how to uh, how the government works and and how decisions are made and uh, and of course how how policy is done uh, which which is, is generate generated by the government um I would sit in my 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 advice to young people who come to me and say you know I said certainly concentrate on one area that really excites you you know you've got to be excited by what you do and space is such an exciting uh, business that you can find countless uh areas in which to uh, to focus on but also f- find out learn about um the the issues de- that your the, the other sectors are dealing with um, and there's a fourth sector here, the international sector, which again I've been very, very fortunate to be uh, engaged in. If you if you don't have a holistic picture of what's going on within those four areas, I think you're 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 being you're short you're short short serving yourself in in, in some ways. Um, I think you you have to you have to be at least aware of the research uh, this. The scientific side, the scientific and technical side, um, the industrial, commercial side, the government side, the policy side, and of course the international side. Um, so um, my advice is always be uh, be focused on something which really you really enjoy, um, but always think about the other areas which you are not quite so familiar with uh, and and learn about them, um, engage people who are in them, um, because they, in the end, will be all part of what you do. The, these, these four areas are in, integrated and interwoven.
1: You know, when I think of young space professionals, I just see leadership. And you were talking about what we need is leadership for space sustainability, and I'm very optimistic <laughs> having met many of these young space professionals, Mm. that they care a lot, a lot about this issue, so much so they are attracted to companies that are, you know, vocal about it as well. So um, I'm very optimistic about that, but I wanted to hear your thoughts on, you know, kind of some predictions about what that space ecosystem is going to look like, say in 15 years, like 2035, um, because we are a space future focused podcast we want to hear your predictions about what the space ecosystem will look like in 2035
2: <laughs> crystal balling is not my my specialty but,
1: <laughs>
2: uh, but it's uh, it's an interesting question um, and I, and I will pick up on what you said um charity because I think that you uh, you do hit the nail on the head um, the The younger people who I meet uh, at various forums um, impress me tremendously. Uh, I think about the Space Generation Advisory Council, which came out of the um, Unispace uh, 3 in 1999, and has produced some remarkable leaders, some remarkable people who have gone through that program. Um, there's uh, the, the other groups like SEDS, the, uh, the Society for the Exploration and Development of, of Space, um, and other 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 groups which which have have really uh, I think stepped up and and um, and provided leadership for um, for the younger generation um, because these young, the people I've met do see uh, in many 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 cases do see this issue as a a multifaceted issue, Um, the the four areas that I mentioned, they tend to to be curious about all of that and and have um, researched and and developed ideas uh, within those um, those areas. Um, So I am optimistic like you. I I am by nature an optimist. uh, and I believe that, that we are in good hands. Uh, some of the old folks need to get out of the way, but uh, that's, uh, that's fine. Um, they, those things will happen uh, over time. Um, and I, my prediction is that in by 2035, let's say 15 years, 20 years, 2040, um, we will be seeing uh, some stronger uh, I'm not. I wouldn't say treaty level, but I would say much stronger uh, guidelines or um, agreements on how to um, develop space in the future. I think this is inevitable. I I see the uh, I see the progression that we have made uh, since 2010 on the sustainability guidelines, and now. The very active discussions that are going on with respect to uh, space mining, with respect to um, uh, space exploration, with respect to space debris, um, the fact that uh, ADR uh, active d- debris removal is back on, I think, on the you know very much on the table, um, uh, and I uh, hope we can pick up on some of those um, previous discussions from the sustainability. Um, Uh, guideline uh, discussions working group uh, on those because we did make progress on them unfortunately we couldn't finalize those those ones but uh, there's been a lot of work and a lot of discussion amongst uh, the state the states on uh, on how to how to move forward on those Um, and um, so I am I am optimistic I must say that we will have much more much better agreements we'll have much better data sharing because in the end it is all about data sharing it's all about the the information that is being and the transparency that will be developed between nations Um, uh, and and areas uh areas such as you know so what what is everybody going to be doing on the surface of the moon um we we can't just have uh, companies or states just saying, "Well, that's my business; it's nothing to do with you." Uh, we really do have to have um, openness, transparency. Uh, remember the transparency of the um, uh, the GGE—you know, transparency and confidence building. We all agree mm-hmm. on that. Uh, now we have to put it into practice. And I am optimistic that in the next 10, 15 years, we will see a long going. We'll see. Go, we will go a long way uh, towards that uh not as far as we want to go we never never <laughs> probably will reach the the end result which probably is a treaty at some level i don't i am still not optimistic that we're going to get a treaty in 10 or 15 years but i think we might get some some really quite hard and fast rules um agreed upon uh by the states to be able to get agreements out it will be bypassed and there will be other forums which will be set up in order to ensure that we do have uh, security, safety, sustainability in outer space, in my opinion.
0: What but a, no what flying a, cars. Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? I, th- I thought we were all optimists here.
2: <laughs> uh, helicopters. Yeah, we'll have Helicopters.
0: We'll yeah. have flying We'll right.
2: have you Uber, Uber, Uber copters, but I don't think we'll have flying cars. So.
1: <laughs>
0: well, <laughs> it's it is a bit tough to predict, but um, so uh, David, thank you. It was um, a fantastic conversation and uh, and so insightful and so grateful for your time and your uh, your advice on uh, on how to make this uh, this world and this space economy that we're all so excited about uh, a better place. better place to be and how we can succeed. Um, But I do have the final question for you, which is always our most difficult one. uh, And that is, if you could be any character from a space movie or TV show, uh, which one would you choose to be?
2: (laughs) Well, Chris, uh, that's an interesting question indeed. Uh, I don't watch a lot of space TV or space movies. uh, (coughs) uh, No, I don't. Scandalous admission. I'm not a great sci-fi person, but uh, anyway, I guess it's part of being a scientist. Uh, it's, uh, it's much, the, the, the actual science is much more interesting than the sci-fi for me. Anyway, um, but I will answer in the following way. Um, I always have been a great fan of Chewbacca. Uh, anybody that can <laughs> grunt and uh, and and drive and, and, and <laughs> steer a, a spaceship like he can, and and come out of uh, come out of all these difficult situations, uh, still still groaning and grunting away, I think is uh, is is somebody that I <laughs> really appreciate it. But I will go back to my British roots, and I would say I've always been want I've always
0: wanted to be. Doctor Who. Yeah. Nice. That is a great answer, too. The Doctor Who I could see. The Chewbacca for someone as articulate and international as David Kendall. I would (laughs) not have predicted that. Chewbacca has a secret
2: life, then let me tell you.
1: So who's going to give us their best Chewbacca impression?
2: <laughs> no, oh not man. me, <laughs> not me. Over to you, Charity.
1: No, no, that would just be horrifying in every way. But well, I well, love the Doctor Who. I, I, like, yeah, I like I think both. you should be cast for that, David. I like time. them both.
0: Um David, this was really fun. Uh thanks so much for joining us. And uh we uh we look forward to meeting up in person sometime and, and again, thank you so much for your time absolutely and uh, thank you thank you to both of you um, and as
2: uh, as our health health specialist here in British Columbia says be kind uh, and be safe so just uh, we're still. We're still not out of the woods yet, and uh, let's uh, let's hope it. Let's yeah. hope it's, and, uh, hope it's soon.
0: And, and and to take one of yours, I'll add, be kind, be safe, and let's be optimistic. Absolutely. We're going to, be, we're going to get through this. And we are.
2: We're going to, uh, we're no going to question. Yep. No question. I look forward yeah. to uh, meeting up with you again, Chris. And yeah. always, it'll be a tremendous pre- pleasure to see Charity and Brian again. So anyway, good. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> David, Thank thanks you. so much for your time. Okay, lovely. Have uh, a wonderful th- day. Thanks for uh, inviting me.
0: Thank you.